It's time for the Access of Easy Podcast. Hey, everybody. It is Mark Jeftovic here with the Access of Easy Salon number 37. We're taping this on February the 11th. And I have Jesse Hirsch with me and Charles Hugh Smith. And we're doing a new technical setup today run by Jesse. It's pretty slick, if not disorienting slightly. But OBS, open source for the win. Open source for the win. <laughs> we were on Jitsi before. We're on OBS Studio now. Both open source packages. Both pretty good at what they do. So what do you guys want to talk about this week? Well, I'd like to hear your guys' uh, comments on on um, the network state because uh, Mark had posted a uh, an interesting tidbit about it, um, and it's it's not a one thing, right? I mean, it's a spectrum. So I'm I'm interested in your guys' views on that. I was going to mention also um, something I saw just before we came on that Facebook had hired a new head of intelligence who used to work for NATO. And he, I mean, he's like a threat advisor, but it just, it was another data point in that, yeah, these these big tech platforms are acting more like sovereigns than they are like, you know, uh, gaming platforms or just social media networks. Well, and, and I hadn't heard that news, but that's fascinating. And I mean, it fits the pattern of Facebook hiring former government people because they've been doing that around the world from Nick Clegg in Britain to, you know, here in Canada, they hired a, a former bureaucrat who's in the prime minister's office. So I think you're right, Mark. I think that that sort of uh, speaks to Charles's point of we should be talking about the network state. And we all often talk about Facebook as being one of the kind of prime examples I, I kind of want to talk about something adjacent to that, which is uh, what's just happened with Twitter in India, in that India is facing mm. this, this massive farmers protest. And the Indian government has pressured Twitter to block 500 accounts that are being used either by protesters or to support the protesters. And Twitter initially resisted it but then felt compelled out of fear that their staff in India could be arrested and could be jailed. So, you know, on the one hand, it gets to the tensions between the nation state and the network state. But I almost felt myself reluctantly giving kudos or props to Twitter for kind of pushing back against the Indian government, but then started wondering, am I doing so because they're becoming a network state and they're standing up to a nation state? So. It, it was. I felt conflicted. It was complicated, and I wasn't entirely sure as to how I felt about the issue, and hence why I thought it'd be worth chatting about it with you guys. I felt that exact same cognitive dissonance when Facebook announced Libra, and you know, usually I'm I'm Facebook's most vocal critic, and yet the nation-state reaction to the prospect of Facebook launching Libra was so visceral. And even underhanded at times, 
I mean, the letter that the State Department sent out to, or the Justice Department sent out to the members of the Libra Consortium were extortion, flat out. I mean, we can link to that in the show notes page. I don't want to detract from what you, the point you brought up about the Twitter, and, but it's the same thing. I understand that cognitive dissonance of like, oh, here's, here's an entity. What do you do when you find yourself thinking along the same lines as an entity that you're heavily critical of going on. And it's actually, I'll, I'll stop after this, but it's, I, I'm noticing this happening a lot lately where the old battle lines are kind of crumbling away. I mean, I wrote a, I wrote a blog post a couple of weeks ago where I laid out, uh, you know, when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tweets this, and Donald Trump Jr. tweets this, this was about the GameStop thing, you realize that the battle lines are different because they were both saying very similar things, but of course from very different ends of the political spectrum. Well, and, and I think, sorry, Charles, I think it's not just battle lines, it's where the, what the speakers are connected to, right? Because if you imagine a big concert hall where one person can speak into the microphone and the other person can't, that strikes me as an interesting metaphor in terms of the way in which our media amplifies some voices and not others. Sorry, Charles, go ahead. No, no, that's good. I'm glad you um, you you uh, spoke to that. Uh, and both of you are speaking to this um, blurring of lines or um, and, and I would also add it also is blurring ideological to, to your point, Jesse that, you know, we all kind of have shorthand, you know, like, yes, I'm in favor of this position because it's you know, free market or it's um, regulations that are necessary to protect the environment. You know, we, we all have these shorthand and then suddenly that sh our shorthand positions don't really necessarily make sense of this. I, I want to speak directly to this uh, farmer protest in India. I think it's a fascinating subject that deserves a little context. And, and there's multiple contexts here, right? We just we're just touching on the, the, the network state nation state. Why are they protesting? I just read this book called The Empire of Food. It's about 10 years old already, but it does contextualize just how fragile the global food supply is. You know, that we, we rely on monocultures and farmers in many, many nations, virtually every nation, are facing competition globally with monoculture growing corporations and they're all being um, devastated, right? And there's this weird dynamic I'm gonna try to explain briefly, which is, the global market tells you, you know, subsistence is a loser because we can get corn cheaper from North America than you can grow it, you know, in, in Mexico or, or anywhere. So why don't you focus on something that is a global commodity, you know, like coffee or whatever? Well, guess what? There's somebody else on a race to the bottom who can grow coffee cheaper than you. So the cash you earn is not sufficient for you to buy the corn that you used to grow. And I think that's exactly what's happening in India. And so these are structural crises on a global scale. And that's the other topic I wanted to kind of bounce off you guys. It's, it's these crises which are not resolvable in some sort of easy fashion that are, are going to be the fault lines between the network state and the, and the nation state. And, and that's one of my conclusions of why this thing um, in India is so important. You know, it's like, it isn't easily resolvable, kind of like um, the Arab Spring, which you know many commentators in, in the region feel is still going on. I mean, w you know, the thing that the, the the burst 
you know, 10 years ago has not really uh, died away or been resolved. It's simply bubbling along. And so um, maybe I'm, I guess what I'm saying is each of these global crises is, is like a fault zone that breaks and, and there's an earthquake. And then the, the, the nation state has to respond and sees the network state as either an ally or as a threat. And then the network state has to defend its interests. And so perhaps that's one way of looking at this. And I think to your point, Charles, the nation state, the politics of the nation state were incredibly simplistic, right? Nationalism as a concept is simplistic. And the way in which nation states tried to govern their subjects was based on really simple ideologies. And to your point, we're, we're in a world in which we're facing really complex problems and we're surrounded by complex systems, i.e. algorithms. And I think if anything, the network state is better positioned to handle these complex problems. And that's part of what the challenge is, I think, to the Indian government is, you know, they're trying to present their reforms as being simple and straightforward. It's just a free market. We're allowing global corporations to play a global, a greater role in the Indian agricultural system. And yet the farmers are, you know, basically saying, no, we, we like the complexity of the existing system. We like subsidies. We like cooperatives. We like the protections that we have in place. And so the, the nation state, the Indian nation state, cannot address that complexity. It cannot understand the demands of the farmers because of the diversity of those demands, because of the number of farmers who are protesting. And so it, it means the nation state's not really in a position to respond, not really in a position to be resilient. And, and I'm hesitant when I say this because I'm not sure that I believe it, but part of Twitter's power in this conflict, part of social media's power in this conflict is its resilience, right? A newspaper can only kind of have one voice, one editorial, but Twitter can have millions of voices, right? You don't need to have coherence. Cacophony is perfectly acceptable. So you can have a huge protest with lots of people having different messages and that's okay, everyone accepts it. Versus a government has to have a unified voice. So it makes me kind of think that Twitter as a network state doesn't need to have consensus, doesn't need to, you know, have some mandate or some rule. It just has to contain, it just needs everyone's attention. As long as Twitter's getting attention, Twitter wins, Twitter is profitable. And again, I'm, I'm not, I myself, I'm not that coherent because I'm still thinking this out, but it makes me feel that the network state benefits from the paralysis of the nation state. It benefits from the nation state being bogged down in complex problems that they have no idea how to solve. And I almost feel that in this current conflict between India and Twitter, even though the national government has been temporarily successful at, at compelling Twitter to block these accounts, I think Twitter is actually going to get uh, more attention, more credibility, more authority by resisting the Indian government's efforts in the longer term. Where does it sit now? Because as I first heard, they they refused, and then they complied, and then they ref then they removed the restrictions again. Is it on again, off again? It is on again, off again. The last I heard, uh, Twitter was not fully complying with the government's request to block, but they were blocking some of the accounts that they had requested, and I think that these were accounts that were engaged in blatant disinformation. 
But, mm-hmm. you know, there, it, it's on the one hand, Twitter is trying to say that they're complying with the government. But on the other hand, they're resisting the government to let the rest of the world, especially North Americans, know that they are still a platform that believes in democracy and freedom of expression and so on and so forth. Yeah, I mean, I think Twitter and a lot of these social media platforms have have made their work harder for themselves because they they fell into the trap, I think, of thinking of themselves as almost de facto nation states and saying, okay, we have to have a coherent policy towards all of this content. We have to moderate all this content. We have to decide we have to even take into consideration things that happen off platform when it comes to our contents and and i mean we all know my position on this is that that's unwieldy and impractical and all they ever should have done is just moderate what is happening on their platform and to your point then you have that cacophony that is very different from what a nation state requires to survive but it's almost what these platforms require to um, to thrive. Really, you need that that barbarian hordes, right? And which which way is which is going? Charles, no, go ahead, Jesse. I'm, I'm... no, no, no. Oh, well, well. Another thing I was going. Oh, am I cutting you off now? No. Continue. I'm reading. I'm reading George Friedman's latest book. Um, and Jesse, you probably know. Who, Um, recognize him he's the stratfor guy right and his new book is called uh before the storm before the calm so he's talking about all that we're going through that he posits will happen for this decade it's very almost fourth turnish right like a 80 year cycle and a 50 year cycle that are for the first time actually occurring at the same time but his point to it was that America in particular, as distinct from other nation states, is an artificial construct. And that gave it certain unique uh, characteristics. And, and I, when I think about it, I think he's, he's not wrong. Like compared to the other nation states, America is an artificial construct. And then what's happening now in this network stage, network state age are um, accidental constructs. So it's like this emergent order, and it's if it wasn't so uh, politically and emotionally charged, it would be fascinating to watch this unfold. It still is fascinating to watch it unfold. But um, just as I think it through, that distinction, it's almost these, this evolution of like a uh, uh, tradition cultural geographical based construct onto an artificial construct and now onto this accidental construct and who the hell knows what comes next although i mean i think it's varying degrees of artificial constructs right Mm. because on a certain level it's all an artificial construct it's a matter of how deep or how superficial that sense of identity may be charles uh yeah i would just say um I ran across a concept recently that was um, the composite state as opposed to a more unified, culturally unified state. So uh, the author's point was um, when nations form, if if they are formed of longstanding cultural, religious, regional identities, 
they, they, they can't really erase those and replace it with a single identity, right? And, and so they're always gonna have a little more complexity and therefore um, a, a, a more subtle management to maintain the, the nation state. And of course, I think um, in, in, my, in my view, I'd say Japan is a pretty good example of a nation that um, has a unified culture. Now, if you go and visit Japan and you have friends there, they will argue with you that, oh no, there's lots of regional diversity in Japan. And, and that is of course true because um, it has a great number of, of environmental regions. And so therefore there's different food, different crops and, and so on and so forth. But from the outside, it has way more unity than say a, a, a cobbled together state like Iraq or, or even the US. So again, speaking to the power of the network state is it actually may work w very well in a composite nation state because there's more room for more diversity. Um, but the nation state, of course, is gonna feel immensely threatened because it's all like, well, we're barely able to hold all these composite identities together as it is now, and you guys are threatening that. And so my last thought is the nation state that's gonna win, in my view, is the nation state that embraces the cacophony, the diversity, and, and says what's holding us all together is the freedom of expression, you know? But, but I guess, is that a nation state, right? And that what I was hearing as you were describing that was in, in my own head, uh, a kind of scholarly explanation as to why we're seeing the resurgence of racism, right? Because while in our respective lifetimes, racism has certainly always been present, it ebbs and it flows, right? There, there's periods of time where it feels like the racists have been kind of beat back and they're hiding. And then there's moments like in the last couple of years where it feels like the racists are coming out of the woodwork again. And I almost feel, Charles, that the frame of the nation state versus the network state partly explains that, right? That there's a part of society that's fed up with the nation state and totally ready for the network state, right? And that's the inclusivity, the diversity, the post-racial identity, the post-ethnic identity, right? The idea that who I was, who my parents were, that doesn't matter. What matters is who I am right now. What matters is the identity that I want to explore right now. And that's what Facebook affords us. That's what social media and the digital world affords us. And that's kind of the embodiment of the network state. Versus to your point, Charles, a nation state thrives best with cultural homogeneity, right? A nation state is, is easier to govern when everyone shares the same viewpoint or when everyone shares the same cultural perspective. And that's part of why United States as a nation state is in such an existential crisis because it is so polarized. But if the United States could re-articulate itself as a network state, a network state that accommodates red and blue, a network state that accommodates the vast diversity that exists in the United States that can't be you know, divided into two camps. It's hundreds, it's thousands. It is, to your point, cacophony, and that's good. And so I think the larger question is whether the superpowers, the, the United States, the China, and to a lesser extent, the Brazils and the South Africas, whether they can evolve to become network states rather than nation states. Because even China, which, uh, you know, tries to project ethnic homogeneity, even China is incredibly diverse, 
right? South Africa is incredibly diverse. Brazil's incredibly diverse. United States is incredibly diverse. If these countries had the foresight to reorganize themselves as network states, they would be they will be dominant as a result. And I like to joke that Canada's in the same position because even though we have the myth of a dominant ethnic identity, i.e. the British kind of identity or even to a lesser extent the French identity, you know, we would be better off if we recognize that it is our diasporas that make us strong. And you better believe right now, behind the scenes, the Indian government is giving a whole heck of a lot of trouble to the Canadian government because it's the Indian diaspora. And in, in particular, the Punjabi diaspora in Canada that is effectively mobilizing on behalf of Indian farmers and engaging in a very impressive global solidarity campaign that I'm sure is pissing the Indian government off to great lengths. <laughs> Unfortunately, the Canadian government's not responsible for any of that. They're spectators like anybody else. Versus I'm arguing if they embraced that notion of a bridge of diasporas, if they embraced that idea that, that, that we're a network of cultures rather than a single culture, that's where I think there's power as we move forward into this network era, this era of the internet. You know, what symbolizes uh, the Canadian diversity um, equation or phenomena more than anything to me is, and I can't remember the guy's name, but the guy who does hockey night in Canada in Punjabi, right? There's something about that that I just love, right? That there's these guys sitting there and he was doing it on his own dime when he first started doing it. He, he just, you know, he grew up in Canada, loved hockey and he would fly around the country paying for it himself. So he could do the, the Punjabi version of hockey night in Canada on Saturday nights. And then you see these guys wearing their, the, the turbans and their suits and they're just, and it's like, it's amazing because it shows that how you can take these two completely separate cultural phenomena and you put them together in a minus 30 degree wasteland like Canada and you come up with hockey night in Canada, which is why, you know, we're the greatest hockey playing nation on earth. But beyond that, I mean, maybe it's because I, I, I live in this liberal bubble known as Toronto where there hasn't been a racial majority in 25 years where um, Toronto has been a multi-ethnic city since I think the mid 90s that it just feels so I mean that just kind of feels normal for me and I assume that it feels normal for everyone in this country but then when I hear uh, Jesse I'm not I'm not going at you on this one but just like why is racism resurgent in the last few years I always bristle at a thing like that because admittedly sometimes I think I downplay the role of it like I just think there's less racism that exists than actually exists in the world but I also and so I sort of look at myself and say okay how much am I downplaying it too much but then I also I have to look at the mainstream media which amplifies it like, I, I, I sincerely think that, like, the organized uh, 
parties like the stormfronts and and those kinds of entities would be completely irrelevant non-entity fringe types if it wasn't for the media just amplifying them all the time except you know there's a part of me that wants to agree with you as long as we put in that category of media facebook because you know we understand now that it's facebook that amplified those extremists it's Facebook that empowered and, and created a recruiting platform for those extremists. And it wasn't until it was too late that Facebook was like, oh, okay, maybe we'll kick these guys off. At which point they then Streisand effect, make them even sexier, right? And give them even more attention. So I agree with your general premise that there's been a kind of media effect that when racism was marginalized, and I, as you know, spent most of my life in Toronto, so I also took it for granted that we were living in a kind of, you know, post-ethnic world, but obviously not all, most of Canada's not like that. And part of the power of social media is where Toronto used to be the media capital of Canada. And all media was produced in Toronto, so it reflected that kind of inclusive liberal worldview Whereas social media allowed everybody to be on the stage and it then rewarded extremists and it rewarded people who were saying the loudest, craziest things as ploys to get attention. And that was sometimes racist. Sometimes it was other crackpots. But I think there was a certain extent in which that extremism was fueled and amplified by social media. And where I will agree with you is I've often criticized the legacy media for just doing whatever Facebook tells them to do and reporting on whatever they see happening on Facebook and Twitter. And so I, I think absolutely that's part of the dynamic. But I also think that we are seeing a, 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 a bifurcation. I was trying to find a better word than bifurcation because it's a mouthful. But to go back to Charles's original kind of argument, I think we're seeing the nation state going in one direction, the network state going in another, and I almost feel as if the network state is too complicated. It's too nuanced. It's too multi-layered for people who want to think simplistically. And that's why people who want to think simplistically, i.e., you know, racism good, racism bad, or whatever binary, they're sticking in the world of the nation state. But the people who are saying, you know what, gender, hey, it's fluid. You know what, sexuality, hey, it's fluid. You know what, ethnicity, it's fluid. Those are the people who are becoming increasingly comfortable in network environments as part of this network state that, that we keep describing. You know, I want to take the um, conversation on a little different direction here. Um, following up on this same theme, though, of the nation state and, and uh, the network state, um, you know, I've been focusing a lot of my thinking recently on um, the way that every socioeconomic political system whether it's hunter-gatherers or a vast empire, it exists to distribute resources, capital, and agency, right? And, and that, that distribution tends to be egalitarian in hunter-gatherer groups because they don't have enough resources, you know, for, uh, to divide up, you know, it's, 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 um, so there's social structures egalitarian. And then you, you have an agricultural urban civilization, like the kind we've known for 5,000 years. And there's this immediately a very asymmetric um, distribution of, of resources, capital, and agency, right? And so to some degree, my question for the network state is how does it affect that distribution of, of the stuff we all actually need? I mean, our physical resources, you know, food, 
energy, fresh water, and you know the rest of the the stuff we need as well, and then the um, intangible forms of capital too, right? So I kind of feel like that 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 area between the network state, as we you know we sort of classically de describe it, and uh, the, the nation state and the network state is actually a very um, fertile sort of wide um, region. And so I'll give you a quick example. Um, there's a um, African-American journalist, uh, Charles uh, Blow, I think is his name. And he just wrote a book um, and it's called The Devil You Know. And um, his premise is interesting because he is saying, you know, African-Americans are about 15% of the U.S. population, but we have very little political power because we're not a majority in any state. So he said, we are close in the Southern states, the traditional um, homes of, of the African-American population. He said, what I suggest is everybody that migrated out of the South to the North in the 20th century moves back to the South and then we can become a supermajority in a handful of states, and then we'll actually have political power. And so political power is a key element of how things get distributed. So to some degree, the nation state is still the most powerful structure because it actually controls the distribution of resources and capital. Now, to the degree the nation, the, the network state starts being able to handle or siphon off that distribution, then it gains real power. And I think that siphoning is happening, right? I mean, this is another recurring trope on our show where we start imagining <laughs> what would be the scenario in which the network state could go on. And then I chime in and go, yeah, that's already happening, is it not? <laughs> right? And, and we saw it with Google and Facebook and how they siphoned advertising dollars away from the traditional media industry, right? And it, you know, uh, Airbnb siphoning resources from the regulated hotel industry, Uber siphoning resources from the regulated taxi transportation industry. So I would argue it's early days, but I do feel to your point, Charles, that we are starting to see the siphoning of resources away from the na uh, nation state, both in a regulatory capacity, but also in a tax capacity. I mean, why is so much of uh, uh, U.S. companies have headquarters in Ireland and how many billion dollars of, ca of U.S. dollars of cash is sitting overseas because U.S. companies don't want to repatriate it out of fear of taxes, right? So I think we're starting to see the early stages of what you're describing. And I think the next step, the next escalation in that conflict is, you know, physical force, right? Like in terms of the monopoly of violence or, you know, treaties. Imagine Google establishing their own treaties with with countries around the export of data right or around the way in which privacy laws are regulated because they don't want america to screw up some treaty negotiation with europe so google does it directly and google negotiates their own treaty relationship with europe or their own treaty relationship with china because you can imagine how these Silicon Valley companies may not want the U.S. government or may not trust the U.S. government to be their diplomacy core or, or to be there. I mean, I, I'm I'm being facetious, but I think we are starting to see the, the early start of that siphoning or that reallocation of resources from the nation state to these companies, to these network states, which are half corporate state, half emerging network state. That's totally snow crash. Like, 
that's what it is. And it reminds me of it. It's an anecdote because it's like on a very small data point, but there was some hedge fund out of New York. I can't remember what the name of it was. It possibly was Steve Cohen's fund who had bought a lot of, a lot of the Argentinian sovereign debt. Like they issued those hundred year bonds and they defaulted on them like very quickly after that. And they repossessed an Argentinian vessel in a foreign harbor somewhere, like in the Middle East. Uh, like, and, and I remember hearing about this story and the, they were talking about like, imagine being around the board table deciding, yeah, let's just go convince the government of Bahrain or whatever that, that we can repossess this ship. And it's like a hedge fund repossessing a, a, a military or whatever it was, government ship. But um, to Charles's point about uh, Charles Blow's idea that, you know, if all of the, the, the blacks went back into the South to become a political force, I thought that's another example of thinking along these, these, these demarcation points one generation out of date. Because if they all did that, I still don't think you would actually get a consensus on anything. Because the political spectrum, that, it'd also probably be gerrymandering to still mess it up anyway. Yeah, they'll still, yeah, it would it'd still be a monkey wrench thrown in. But there would, there would not be this plurality of thought to actually form a political supermajority because you would still have, you know, there's, there's, there's Republicans. Con conservatives and liberals and people who are just who people who are progressives that don't identify as liberals and people who are libertarians that don't identify as. As, it, it, like so, my point is, is it's, it's sort of whether the mainstream media and the social media networks that are amplifying the, these old sort of division lines are with it or not. People in their thinking have moved beyond to this next iteration. So it's like identity politics. I will go out on a limb and say it, it's more mythological than re than real. When you really put people together to actually decide the outcome of their fate or to vote vote on the outcome of their fate, I don't think they're going to do it along identity politics lines. I don't think they're going to do it along these 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 cultural boundaries that that we put around them. I agree in the sense that you know I identity politics doesn't make sense in the context of nation state politics. In that the nation state assumes that if you're Jewish, you're going to vote along the same lines as other Jewish people without recognizing that there are Jews who believe in Israel and there are Jews who are opposed to Israel as one example. Right. So I, I think, you know, I didn't think about it until you said it, but I think identity politics is another symptom of the network state. It's another example of how in the network state, your identity does not determine your politics, but it is something that you are going to express as a form of your uniqueness. So in the nation state, identity politics is a threat. In the network state, identity politics is an asset, not in terms of how you vote, but in terms of your sense of belonging, in terms of your sense of community. Because if we go back to our earlier hypothesis that the network state thrives on cacophony, then identity politics as, you know, uh, an infinitely regressive form of identity, because you can basically keep carving out identity forever, right? Until you literally have an identity of one. Network state says, great, 
We got no problems with that. If you want a caucus of one, awesome. We can accommodate you because that is the nature of the network state. Versus the nation state needs big groups. It needs super majorities. It needs to get people along common grounds. So maybe identity politics is a manifestation of the network state subverting the nation state and creating structures that empower people in the network era, but at the same time disempower the nation state and its ability to build consensus using the old school majority style decision making versus in the network state, it's not about majorities, it's about voting up and down on individual issues. Right, voting up on down on individual riders within individual issues, because that's what Reddit teaches us. Right on Reddit, you can upvote the topic and then downvote every comment made about that uh, uh, post. And I think it's that nuance, it's that proliferation of voting and participation that embodies, I think, what we're describing in terms of the network state. Well, let me take that a step, um, to, uh, take another sort of path off of what you just described. Let's let's talk, um, let's think about like how the network state can um, uh, sort of create or be the platform that would create new political identities, not necessarily single issue, but perhaps a new kind of identity um, and let me give you an example. One of the one of the um, say, for instance, if if these um, if the southern states became African American majorities, simple majorities, <clears throat> what kind of what kind of political identity could be formed through social media and shared values or whatever you want to call it that could actually create like a different party that was not ethnically defined, you know? And so I'll give you like one issue that I could think of that. Um, that Vietnamese, Indians, uh, Caucasians, uh, many of the ethnic groups in, in, in the Southern states would, would support um, uh, restrictions on, on uh, say the traffic uh, police um, stopping you uh, because of your ethnicity, right? In other words, driving while black. So th that's an issue that a lot of people could relate to, although, although the people who are you know, suffering the consequences of that are, are typically African-American. So, my, my point here is that I could see what I'm hopeful about or excited about is the possibility that the network state is an organizing tool for new political identities that then have power in the network state because the network state still controls the distribution of resources and capital. So, you know, um, you know the network state, to really have influence, it's going to have to organize or be a tool for organizing new political identities that change the distribution of resources and capital. Although very briefly, I think the paradox is that my initial observations of the way issues and politics work in the network state is that it's issue driven rather than identity driven. And I think one of the best examples of this right now in the United States in terms of public policy is marijuana legalization, right? right? That marijuana legalization, uh, you know, it, it historically has been regarded culturally where the left was maybe in favor and the right was against. Now it's mostly regarded economically, right? It's mostly regarded in terms of either tax revenues or economic development, you know, a lot of the harm prevention. So it's no longer a left versus right issue, right? And in some cases it's an age issue, 
where younger people are more in favor and older people are not. But even then, it's it doesn't always divide that way. And so it strikes me that in the network state, it's issues that are able to reach majority and supermajority. And those issues unite across identity. And that people have different reasons for supporting the issue, right? And some people are users of marijuana. Some people are shareholders or investors in marijuana companies. So I, I think we're going to see more issues like that, that defy traditional divisions of identity or divisions on ideology. Because the point of the network state is it allows for those types of rallies, those types of swarms. Because I think that's the other interesting thing about GameStop. That GameStop wasn't so much ideological other than David versus Goliath, right? But it was more if you wanted to play, join in. You know, we don't care if you're a card-carrying member of the party. We don't care if you pass our ideological purity test. No, if you want to beat up on Wall Street, come on, join in. And I think we're going to see more and more issues like that, that are inclusive, that are participatory, that allow people to bring their own issues to the game and transcend traditional boundaries, whether ethnographic or ideological. I mean, that, that reminds me of my very early days being involved in the internet, you know, in the mid nineties and, and late nineties and reading like etiquette FAQs before joining in a given community. And, and they would say things like, you know, keep in you know, keep it civil, uh, always bear in mind that it's a human being on the other end of, of whatever, you know, the screen or whatever. But the one thing that stuck with me in the time was you're going to forget the identity of everyone you're arguing with because the names go by so fast and something that you are at, at each other's throat about today, you're going to be on the same side of some other issue tomorrow. And it was that, and you're not even going to notice Right, it's it's that sort of free floating um, aggregation and disaggregation around specific issues, and that to me that makes me optimistic, cautiously optimistic about you know a lot of times we talk about network state in a dystopian isn't this going to suck when Google runs the world context, but in this in this context it, it could be good. It could what I what I hope we can do is overcome the polarization like right now and, and maybe I, I i succumb to it sometimes myself on twitter you sort of judge each other by what's in the bio it's like oh yeah blue check figures you know but you know maybe we can get past that and sometimes you even notice it and you say oh okay yeah i remember it's kind of going back and forth with this guy and i'm on the same side of as as this person on this other issue and and that's a pleasant surprise and and if we can keep building on that and and not artificially drag those artificial boundaries and identifiers from the net, the nation state age into this the, into this sort of new plateau, um, I think that would be a good thing. Although interestingly enough, you you kind of made me uh, meditate on my own my own superficial practices, on my own superficial judgment. And in, in that reflection, I almost wonder if there's an insight to the way in which the network state is creating new biases. And in particular, like I thought of what you were saying, that when you go to someone's Twitter profile, how do you instantly judge if they're trustworthy or they're credible? And for me, it's not the blue check mark so much as it's their numbers. 
right? In that I will look at, at, at a few characteristics, the ratio between the followers and followed, but I'll always be biased in favor of a David. If I see a Twitter person and they legitimately have a small number of followers and they're following a small number of people, I'm far more likely to take that person seriously because that's my bias, right? Versus when I see someone who has a huge Twitter following, I'm more likely to go, what a blowhard. You know, I, I don't, I don't want to listen to this person, right? And, and that's my cognitive bias. But it does make me reflect that maybe subconsciously it's numbers, right? It, it's metrics of attention. And we're using metrics of attention in the network state to decide who to trust. Some of us are Davids and we're more likely to trust other Davids, right? Other people are drawn to Goliaths and, and they look up to Goliaths and they're going to trust someone because they've got a lot of followers on Twitter or, you know, subscribers on YouTube. And, and I say that critically and that I, I feel bad. I, I'm self-conscious that I do it myself, albeit in reverse. But I almost wonder if that is one of the, the replacing metrics that, that influence how we allocate the limited resource we all have, which is our attention. And maybe we should be aware of that. Maybe we should be careful of how our, our new biases are being shaped, in this case, by numbers, by analytics, rather than our old biases, which might have been ideology or culture or identity, that, you know, we still have to be cautious as to where we blindly trust rather than be, you know, uh, healthy and skeptical and critical. I think that's a fascinating point, like the, the emergence of new biases. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll, I'll, I'll let Mark, I'll let you take it away. I just want to say my bias is on Twitter is in favor of people who have posted thousands of tweets and have almost no followers, you know, like, it's just like, they're just obdurate. They just put who their are stuff you talking to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're just jamming. Yeah. That's, uh, that's what I think of when I look at mine, like I'm thinking, holy how did what did this guy do for three thousand tweets or whatever I pumped out ten thousand whatever it is? Yeah, I was gonna say like you start getting into the tens of thousands there. But sometimes you see you see people who have a lot of followers and they're tweeting like ten times a minute. That's like every six seconds, and it's like I know you have a job. Like, <laughs> what is your employer? Is your are you being paid? Like, like how do you sometimes. get anything done? But like, like I, you've you've hit a hornet's nest of issues. Um, <laughs> but but one of them is because I used to be critical of this in media companies, right? I used to at the CBC look at some people and go, "Are you working for the CBC or are you working for Twitter?" But then I sort of reflected, you know, I bet you that the CBC is paying them to work Twitter, right? Because of course the CBC needs Twitter to bring them audience. So yeah, I think there are a lot of employers who are paying their staff to, to work Twitter, right? To play the game, to do the hustle in hopes that it brings attention and hopes that it brings customers, business, whatever. And I think there's a paradox to that. I mean, I'm also turned off by the most verbose tweeters, right? I, I prefer people who focus on signal rather than noise of quality rather than quantity. But sometimes in the back of my head, I, I get this fear of Jesse, you're doing Twitter wrong. Because you're not putting out volume. Because you're not just cranking out the hits and, you know, uh, uh, figuring out how to just constantly, 
spin the hamster wheel that is social media. <laughs> Thankfully, I'm not a hamster. So at the end of the day, I'm totally content being the human that I am. But I, I, I think it is a paradox in terms of the way in which these numbers influence our psychology, influence our motivations, and then cause us to conform to the platform itself. And, and very briefly, I'm seeing this right now on Twitch. Because Twitch is... I mean, I love studying social media because every social media platform is different. So every time you come to a new platform, there's an opportunity to compare and contrast. There's an opportunity to go, how are these guys doing it different from the other bozos? And Twitch is interesting because even though it was not originally owned by Amazon, it's owned by Amazon now. And Amazon is a master of optimization, right? The reason that that company is taking over the entire economy, if not the world, is because they optimize everything. They optimize their staff. They optimize their warehouses. They optimize their logistics. And I feel that that same philosophy of optimization is being applied to Twitch. Because as a content creator, Twitch is like a video game, right? They give you all these achievements. They've got all these metrics. They've got all these things that try to encourage you to move forward. But what are they trying to get you to be? First, an affiliate, and then a partner. And what do those words mean? Affiliate means that you're selling stuff on behalf of the company. And partner means that you've partnered with the company to sell stuff on behalf of the company. So to couch this in access of easy terms, the company store sells everything <laughs> online, including attention. And Twitch happens to be the department within the company store in which they're training the salespeople of the future on how to gather attention and bring all that attention back to the company store where the company store gives you a little bit of script so you can go and then spend it elsewhere in the company store. So it, it's a brilliant kind of uh, psychology that created, of which I am entirely susceptible and, and falling prey to myself. I, I admit transparently. But everybody's quest, right? When you talk to a small streamer, when you talk to a David on Twitch, all they want is affiliate status. They don't know why. They don't know what affiliate status means. You know, maybe they get a sense that it'll lead to money for them. And that's a legitimate motivation. But it's the platform. It's the numbers. It's the way it just draws out that desire for affiliate status. That I, I'm impressed. Like, I gotta say, you know, Twitch, you're building a better built mousetrap here. Because boy, are you getting these mice to run through the maze and go after that cheese. You know, and, and, and that I offer as a cautionary tale of the network state, right? That that's an example of the manipulative side of the network state that I think we have to be vigilant and critical of. And it's why I bring it up, because I feel that I can use Twitch as long as I take opportunities like this to talk about how evil the platform is. <laughs> Our man on the inside of Twitch, Jesse. <laughs> I mean, is that a good point to end? I was yeah, just thinking think, that, yeah. Yeah, it's a great topic. We'll have to pick that up, the manipulative uh, dynamics of, of the network state. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks for joining us. Everyone, don't forget to press all those buttons to like us on YouTube, Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, and we will see you all next week on the Access of Easy. See you, everybody. <laughs>